0: 75 days until the Vancouver municipal election. This is the Canby Report. I'm Ian Bushfield. I'm Patrick Meehan. And today we're joined by Stuart Prest. Hi, good to be here. Before we jump in, just a quick reminder to everyone who's new to listening, make sure to subscribe. Everyone who has been listening for a while, tell a friend. Word of mouth is probably our best way of advertising. A lot of people haven't heard of us yet. We're getting good numbers, but... We should get better, especially as we come up on the election. Also check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash report Everyone who signed up there has gotten an invite to our Slack channel, which is tons of fun. Lots of good conversations happening there.
1: Yeah, lots of really neat links get posted, lots of really neat conversations.
0: And we will be posting details of our live show for patrons as soon as we have pinned them down. Because venues are difficult to deal with. If you have a good venue or run a place that can hold 50 to 80 (laughs) politics nerds, email us. But let's get into today's show. We're going to be talking about the NPA, the downtown east side, Wales, and touring around some of the other environs while we're talking about municipal elections. But first, Stuart, you are a political science instructor teaching around the province?
2: Well, around the lower mainland. We try to keep it within driving distance.
1: You're not teaching up at like college of new caledonia
2: no no but i would listen to offers from uh, fraser valley
0: (laughs) what is the focus of sort of what kind of political science is a huge field right so what are the kind of like favorite classes you like to teach
2: so i i have this i'm a political science generalist which is just a death now i (laughs) trained as a specialist in international relations and comparative politics but what i end up teaching simply because it's What's out there is a lot of Canadian studies, but it is fortunate that I really like talking about Canadian politics. And I also enjoy tweeting about Canadian politics and just you try to get me to shut up about Canadian politics. So it's actually working out quite well. I'm really enjoying that. So I have a course at SFU in the fall, Canadian Federalism, and a handful of courses at Douglas.
1: And uh, and in terms of Twitter, where can, they, where can people find you? At Stuart Prest. That's my name.
2: S-T-E-W-A-R-T-P-R-E-S-T.
0: So you've been tweeting a bunch about Vancouver politics as well as provincial and federal politics. What's your broad, high-level political science hat on take so far before we get into all the stories we're going to talk about?
2: So the city is in the process of a a political realignment, and we're seeing it play out in real time, which is really interesting. And for a political scientist like me, it's exciting because partly we don't know how this is going to end. We're starting to see some things settle down as parties have stopped appearing, we think. We have uh, several new ones. We have several new parties with several new issues that have gone from being marginal issues like housing to burning topics of conversation that every party has to have a position on and several have turned into their their reason for being. So that just what people care about has changed, how they organize has changed, and they're all in this extremely crowded field. So we've got this sort of almost like a, an evolutionary event where we have a bunch of new political species that have emerged and we're probably going to see a few of them survive and a few of them die off. Given Vancouver's electoral system, it's very hard for this many parties, this many candidates to survive over the long term. And I could go on about the shortfalls of the, the Vancouver <laughs> electoral system. I have, I have thoughts. But so long as that's the way we elect council there's going to be a real sort of imperative to have concentration on, on the left or the right, although it won't necessarily be on the left and the right uh, in the traditional sense anymore, because we have this movement towards having a, a more and less urban kind of politics. And that can happen on the left and on the right.
1: It's sort of like how one city and, yes, Vancouver have very similar policies on changing zoning.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly it. And you can have an expression of a, a, a strong urbanist bent That is center right and also center left. You can have a very cautious, you wouldn't say, I mean, anti urbanist, but you'd have a a very cautious approach to additional development on the left and on the right as well. They have different language. Some will talk about the, the problems of, of zoning, of, of uh, too much government interference and changing the way things are done. You might hear that on the right. On the left, you might hear about concerns about developers and the influence of development. But the end result is the same. You have urbanist, less urban, and you can have that on the left and the right. And we've, we're going to see all that work itself out in the next three months and then perhaps the election after.
0: It's like a different political compass without the authoritarian axis. There's a urbanist. Yeah. Access yes. almost.
2: I mean, that's a that's a good way to think about it. You have a, an urbanist access and then you have a more or less state or in this case city intervention access. And that's we're seeing uh, almost like a, uh, a horseshoe of, of some on the, the extreme right, which are anti uh, development and and also um, less interested in government intervention. And then you're having some really cautious takes on, on the left as well that don't want to see the city change.
1: It makes sense to me that that urban-rural split might exist because if you look and if you cut the line down at 16th Avenue in Vancouver and you just look at 16th to Marine Drive, that's pretty suburban. It is, you know, predominantly single-family dwelling, almost exclusively all the way that whole swath. And if you look at 16th North, well, entirely different story. And so it makes sense to me, like you say, is that we're not split under normal lines. We're split now under this sort of like this urban-rural split. Yeah.
2: And we're also divided – into housing comfortable and housing uncomfortable so you have um, in any kind of conversation on housing you almost have to know where someone's coming from because everybody has a really strong interest in the issue of housing so either they've they've done quite well over the last uh, however many years they've they've owned or if they are renting and and having to pay the current market price for a rental in the city they're they're really feeling that and so it it places it just right down the city it just divides the city and there's There's no easy way to deal with that. It's just we have conflicting interests in the city.
0: That's funny. You called it like, or jokingly called it a secret handshake of like, are you a renter or an owner when you meet meet people in Vancouver? Do you think this divide is uh, bridgeable? Like, are we sort of so entrenched in the, like, is there's a problem in a lot of politics when you get two totally different cultures, like the partisanship of the U S do you think Canada or Vancouver has reached that toxic level or is it still manageable in some way for the smart political parties out there
2: well in one sense it's worse in that these are these are genuine interests and we don't want to I mean, you hear sometimes people talk about well we just need to sort of get beyond the the vitriol it's i mean people have competing interests and property is one that that genuinely divides people and you need to be open about that fact and if we're we're going to get beyond that situation. And it, it's going to be through talking about compromise, about how do we find ways to open up the city and make it more affordable so we have fewer uh, housing uncomfortable people who are able to live in a situation that they can afford and they can do handle the, the the work and the salary that is available to them. Because part of the problem in Vancouver is that rents are sky high and salaries are, are not. So there's a there's a real imbalance there. And, and so until we can bring those things into a little more balance, you're going to have people who are really upset about housing, but at the same time, you have those on the other side, and there's going to have to be some sort of compromise in the middle for the city to move forward.
0: Do you have any, I guess, before we move into our main topics for today, do you have any hopes for this election? Like, what are you kind of watching for? Not like, who are you necessarily going to vote for? But like, what kind of messaging are you looking for from political parties, maybe even on a personal level?
2: Well, first of all, in one sense, I'm really happy about how things have gone already. We've gone from a position where elections were fought over bike lanes and not marginal issues, but issues that uh, in the current context are less important than getting people housing. And so now we suddenly are talking about the thing that matters most. And we're talking about transit. We're talking about the things that make the greatest difference to people. So that's already a victory. So, I mean, we don't know where council is going to end up on those issues, but at least we're having the right conversation. And I think that's a real step forward. I think in terms of personal hopes, I think it's important that we end up with a council that doesn't try to minimize issues around housing. I think it's a a serious concern in in the city, and it's one that affects virtually every level of income. Uh, in different ways, obviously, in very different ways. But it's something that needs to be grappled with seriously, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. So I would hope whoever wins that they come at this with real energy and a sustained focus.
0: Well, one party that doesn't seem to be minimizing the number of people they're trying to run is the <laughs> more partisan
1: association. Or maximizing the number of issues they want to talk about on housing. Uh, they really haven't really touched no, the NPA, which I think we're jumping into now, really hasn't touched base on housing at all.
0: That was a big criticism of Ken Sim, actually, when he was both running for the Mm mayoral nomination from them and even in his acceptance speech. His kind of ability to empathize with people who are housing precarious or feel that we're in a crisis didn't seem to be there as he at some points didn't even really suggest there was a crisis.
1: Yeah, he, he almost sort of got, went out of his way to avoid the word crisis at times. Talking about how there's, you know, a, a, a dire housing situation or this, that, or the other thing. Right.
0: But the NPA has come forward with their list of council and park board nominations. There are actually a lot of surprises in here. I think the first thing that wasn't really a surprise, as I think we've mentioned before, the NPA held a closed nomination, So and
1: mm-hmm. essentially
0: their board just selected the people who yeah. are going to represent them
1: so first off the list was melissa de Genova, which ended the will she or won't she there was a lot of you know speculation amongst many that she might jump over to yes vancouver or whatever hector brenner's party was going to be named now yes vancouver uh, i think this is unsurprising melissa de Genova has you know been pretty steadfastly npa in terms of her opinions over the course of her time on camp
2: so she said no to yes vancouver
1: yes <laughs>
0: The other familiar names for the NPA are going to be Sarah Kirby Young, who's making the jump from park board to council, and Lisa Dominato, who's jumping from school board to council, or at least they're hoping to.
1: Yeah, and that's that's it's pretty standard for one or two people to jump up and, you know, they, they've spent some time, they understand what a board is, regardless of their time on the board, they know how to be a board member of a thing.
0: And then the other names I'll run through quick and then we can... Dive into some of the more interesting ones. And then I think, even more interestingly, who's not on the list? Mm-hmm. Well, first, not on the list is Elizabeth Ball, the other incumbent counselor for the NPA, who a lot of people had been wondering. And I well, think even and she, even,
1: even when the list was published, they left the door open. When the list was published, they said, Well, we've got nine candidates and we'll have 10 if Elizabeth Ball decides to come back. And then the next day, Elizabeth Ball said, Well, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know what? I understand that. Like we've said before, you know, being on council is a full time job, it's difficult.
2: Full time plus. I mean, yeah. we don't want to minimize how hard it is to be an elected official. And sometimes it's, it's easy to con- criticize politicians, but regardless of party, it's, it's a tough job.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think Ball is pretty widely respected and she's very active in the arts community here in Vancouver. And I think a lot of her passions are there. So I think she wants to get back into that when, you know, running for re-election is always a bit of a gamble. But the new names coming forward the NPA are Rebecca Bly, Justin Goodrich, David Gruel, Colleen Hardwick, Kathy McGarrigal, and Francisco or Jojo Quimpo.
1: It's funny because, you know, Charlie Smith has posted this and I think we're going to get into it in a bit, but it's, it's the NPA tends to do a bit of a scattershot approach to their candidates. Every election, they seem to run as many as humanly possible. And honestly, it makes it hard for us. Because I now have to research all of these people, and I'm not, you know, no journalist has the time to do a deep dive assessment of each person's biography. No journalist has the ability to do a spotlight piece on each person, and so I, you know, I, we'll get into it. But I, you know, it's it's it's. I will say off the hopper, it's a little frustrating because I have to now try to learn nine people's names and bios.
0: Well, and the NPA provides a bio, but you kind of want to develop the nonpartisan. Right. for the nonpartisan association people because they're going to pitch these people in the best view like I googled some of these people and there are unsavory people with the same name where you're like that's not the same no they're not okay but that takes time to figure out who are the mm-hmm. real ones so I didn't find up any like obvious derp but I think there are policy dis- disagreements mm-hmm. we have, or you know you I know have one or two <laughs> well,
1: of them well certainly I think so uh, and so that's uh, the one that I would I would ha- really highlight first is uh, Colleen Hardwick was really a will she or won't she run and no one ever knew who or where she might run. She attended the Crossroads Conference, uh, which was the conference to pull together all the progressive parties to oppose the NPA. She was a, a paid attendee at that. And uh, a little bit awkward in terms of her opposition to bike lanes. So to give her a bit of a background, uh, she is the founder of an organization called PlaceSpeak, which is meant to uh, essentially connect uh, the community together. The idea is that you register with PlaceSpeak. It's actually a really fantastic organization. You register with PlaySpeak and you know your your municipality can do various consultations through PlaySpeak because they know where everyone lives and they've got, you know, twenty thousand people or whatever in the community sign up to it. It's a really neat orga- neat way to do community organizing. And Colin Hardwick also uh, came to fame with the Haddon Park bike lane, uh, as was proposed, which was a bike lane to go through sort of Kitts Beach area. The idea was get the bikes off of the pedestrian uh, sidewalk on Kitts Beach because they're cycling on there now and give them their own uh, two meter wide space of pavement on what is a very large uh, manicured lawn. And uh, the argument that Colleen Hardwick and her, her supporters used was that uh, the person that uh, bequeathed the park to the city uh, wanted it to be left in pristine natural order. And I guess to Colleen Hardwick, pristine natural order is a well-manicured lawn. And so, you know, she arranged for or or, or had somebody put out uh, lime markerings where, per, like, potentially the bike lane would go. Uh, she contracted a historian to come in and look at uh, the historical precedent for the park. And she really, really went to town to fight this bike lane. And she's very proud of that. She highlighted that that was a prideful thing of hers when I met her as a, as a note. And so... The NPA is now running a wildly anti-bike line person.
0: Or at least anti-that bike. Anti-that bike
1: lane, anti that bike lane. Compared yeah. Compared to her. Also, as a, as a fun little note, is her father was the chief planner of the city of Vancouver. She herself is, I believe, an urban planner. Uh, and her father has a street named after him uh, in the Olympic Village, is Michael Hardwick Way. Hmm. And so she's she's got ties into the city quite deep. She's been involved in the city for a long time. Yeah.
2: Her bio emphasizes that,
1: too. Oh,
0: I'm sure. Well, the only name besides hers that I come across before was Justin Goodrich because he'd been talking about running for quite a while. I think he first started talking about running for the NPA when all the supply bros were. And I'm using that in the sort of when it was a bunch of young guys who were trying to seek the sort of Hector Bremner slate there. Now none of whom are with that slate, but that's a separate (laughs) thing that we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. The week before? A while ago. But Justin Goodrich, I guess, stuck with the NPA. And he's also... Gone to bat for like the word progressive within a party like the NPA, which has always struck me as broadening the definition and twisting it beyond utility.
2: It seems like there's a couple of candidates just going through their bios on the NPA website that are making a similar sort of, of move. It's an interesting. This is uh, just trying to draw out what are the common themes of these these candidates. It's a, a couple of them mention things like social justice, or they mention. Progressive city, or sorry, progressive society, and so we're seeing a a party that's self consciously pro business. That seems like it's another key theme. A number of them are are coming from successful business careers, and that's being played up quite a lot. But it's if you're thinking about again that that sort of two by two spectrum, it's uh, so you would expect fiscally conservative but more socially progressive. And I guess that makes sense in a city like Vancouver, where the population does not have a, a strong sort of social conservative voting bloc. We haven't seen that for a while. And so this seems like they're they're trying to position themselves in that sort of center well, right and space.
1: That has been historically the NPA mantra. The NPA has consistently had, you know, an openly gay counselor with them for a number of years now. It is what they've done. And I, we'll see if running the same strategy works again. And that's something I'm really curious about.
0: I think the other notable candidate, though, is who I read up on is Jojo Quimpo, who mm-hmm. comes from... I think the Federal Conservatives.
1: Yeah, he's a Federal Conservative uh, guy. He's a a paralegal by trade. And he ran for the Federal Conservatives, oddly enough, in the 2015 election in Vancouver Hastings, uh, which if I were to pick a riding and an election in which to not run for the Federal Conservatives, um, the 2015 election in Vancouver Hastings might have been on the high end of that list.
0: I mean, they needed to put someone up.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And he, he sought the nomination and ran. That's that's fine. Uh, he's most famous for uh, organizing one of the largest uh, Filipino Canadian uh, festivals in in, in Canada, Pinoy Fiesta, I should say. And so he is, you know, he's he's got a, a name in, in 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 culture and in business through his 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 paralegal work. So you know, he is a named candidate, and he does come from East Vancouver in terms of where he ran last. Although my understanding was that he lives downtown could be wrong on that one. But he, you know, in theory has built some rapport in East Vancouver, which the NPA obviously lacks.
0: Well, that's one thing that's kind of interesting about this slate is it is a very diverse slate. It's majority women running for council. Mm -hmm.
1: It's,
0: you know, you got David Gruel, Jojo Quimpo, representing different sort of ethnic communities. You have Ken Sim, Chinese Canadian, on Mm -hmm. your mayoral slate. Although on the other hand, you have Charlie Smith in the charlie Smith somehow, and mark
1: and mark marison
0: and mark marison retweeting it, making this argument that Ken Sim can't speak Mandarin or Cantonese, and none of their council candidates can, but one of their board members can. This is a weird aside <laughs> that will not go down that tr- rabbit hole, but none of their people on their slate can, so they won't have any access to the Chinese Canadian media. You know, and if, if they've seeded that to Wei Young.
1: Well, and they also they also claimed that this was somehow you know both tone deaf, but also somehow uh, an affront to the Chinese community. And, you know, if a non-rich white guy uh, was telling me that, like somebody that came out of the, you know, the Chinatown Business Improvement Association or what have you not, like somebody from the Chinese community were saying that, then I would give it some 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 salt and like some, some care and attention. But I find it so insulting to have a couple of white guys tell me that this other party that's running a Chinese Canadian is somehow – Not being diverse enough, not being diverse enough, uh, because he doesn't speak the language.
0: Well, to close off the people who are running for the NPA on Park Board, they have incumbents John Cooper and Casey Crawford running, which again,
1: surprising. I think, I think we all expected John Cooper after deciding he wanted to run for mayor to run for council.
0: I think he announced his intention to stay on Park Board within a week or two after losing the mayoral (laughs) nomination. It is weird, though, that you kind of aim for the high, miss it, and then just kind of go, oh, I'm good here. Stay where you are. But, you know, I'm sure he has his reasons. And, you know, his claim to fame is saving the Bledel Conservatory. So Park Board is a good fit for him. Mm-hmm. They are also bringing on three more people, Trisha Barker, Paul Beesla, and Anne-Marie Copping. I can't say anything about these people. But it is interesting that where they're running nine out of 10 people for council, they're only running. Five people for out of a, seven,
1: a seven slate, so. and so it's you know it's close to full. All right, but the running
2: a nine candidate slate for council is interesting. It's probably worth talking about a yeah. bit. It's, the number, it's bizarre. Yeah, it is. You could make sense of it if you were even one election cycle ago,
1: like the when there's less parties. The left
2: side yeah. works hard. They have three, four, depending on the election, the cycle. Parties that are trying to occupy adjacent political spaces. Mm-hmm. And then you have the NPA that was sort of sitting free and clear on the, the right side of the spectrum. But now for the first time in a while, they have a, a center right challenger in, in uh, Hector Bremner's yes, Vancouver party. And so if one option for them would have been to run maybe five or six to be like the, the vision of, of the right yeah. and say, try we're, to, try we're to the big dog bones. here, but we're still going to mm-hmm. make it uh, possible for you to, to vote for this this other party and we're not going to have 16 or was it 15 Candidates, uh, whatever the math is, um, running in the thirteen this, is what the thirteen. The, so, thir- so yeah. one and a half councils running in the uh, in, in the, the the right sort of the, the right-hand lane um, or the, the center-right lane, and so that it makes it harder for anyone out of the right to to win.
1: So, I looked at this in terms of what kind of logic would cause this. So, there's two two sets of logic criteria that I came up with. The first set of logic criteria is very simple: the more people you have, the more door knockers you have, and you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. I think that evidence and data would indicate that that's probably a poor decision.
0: I mean, based on that logic, they should run everyone who is volunteering for them. Yeah, There's no limit that you only have to run 10.
1: So then the next side of that that I came up with was they're making four assumptions that are all, I think, the safe bet. But they're assuming that all four of them happen. It's the run the table mentality. And those four assumptions are, one... Hector Bremner and his new party will not be able to get off the ground. They will fizzle. I think that's a, probably the safer bet than they will get off the ground and be a real force. And then similarly, they're making the assumption that one city is too new, too young, too niche to be able to really make a breakthrough. They're also making the assumption that Vision Vancouver's negative polling numbers are something that they can't surmount, that they can't get people to forget their their, his- their history that people don't like about Vision. And the fourth one is that Adrian Carr is great, but that the Green Party can't lift up multiple candidates. They can just get Adrian Carr. If all four of those assumptions are correct, then the NPA are sitting on seven to nine councillors elected. But I think it's a dangerous territory to take four safe bets and assume all of them happen.
2: I looked at it a little differently. I was thinking if you were the NPA and you might assume that uh, the yes Vancouver side uh, won't get traction, if you wanted to try to make that hard for them, to make it less likely they get get rac- uh, uh, traction, I mean, this is what you would do. You would run a full slate on the right, centre-right, so that there isn't really an opportunity for anyone to say, well, I want to vote for for the NPA, but I also would like to cast a few votes for uh, Hector Bremner's crew. <laughs> That's just not on the table anymore. It's going to be, you're either picking and choosing your favourites on NPA, and then voting for a Yes Vancouver slate, or your just going to vote for NPA, if you're voting for, for yes, Vancouver, then then it sort it of changes the the equation for, for voters. And so I think it makes life huh. a little bit more difficult for a new fledgling party looking for support. This
1: is, this is a defensive play to prevent a, a, a new front on their right-hand side kind of thing. I think that's, I mean, I can that, see that's that. how I read it. Yeah. Well, and I also think this is a bit of a power play. I think they think they might actually be able to run the table because I think it's not unreasonable to say that There's such a weird dynamic right now that if they run everything, they might get it. And we saw that with the school board by-election, where if the Greens had run seven, like nine candidates, they probably would have gotten nine elected.
0: Just for people wanting a change, but...
2: We want to be careful extrapolating from by-elections. Oh, yeah. They're they're their own thing. Absolutely.
0: You mean a 2% turnout isn't representative of the city? Surprisingly not. Uh, The idea of trying to head off the one, um, head off the yes, Vancouver is tempting. I mean... Patrick makes a good argument that the NPA is coming here almost out of arrogance. And this, you know, we don't need to even think about the other parties. Of course, it's ours to lose.
1: Visions in the tank. One city, who knows who they are. The Greens, they're just a one-issue, one-person one party. And this Hector Bremner thing, they're just a bunch of dudes over on the side.
0: But if they look at it more existentially long-term, a party like Yes Vancouver that's trying to really reshape the city on that sort of same economic side does pose a deeper threat than <laughs> another vision election. It's sort of like in Alberta, the progressive conservatives and Wild Rose viewed each other probably as more of a threat than yeah. the, uh, than one well, term and more,
2: Even more recently in Ontario, the Liberals were very reticent about back in the NDP. And, uh, and there yep. was whispers that they preferred one term of uh, the which, Doug Ford because they could run against Doug Ford.
1: Which actually leads me to really wonder what kind of campaign the NPA would run. If this is the case on this, 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 this sort of the school of thought run that I, I don't disagree with, what kind of campaign is the NPA going to run? Is the NPA going to run a real, you know, protect our single family homes, get rid of those cyclists campaign again, just to try to head off the Hector Bremner's? There is an
2: opportunity for them. If if there are five, let's say four parties, they're all saying some variation of, we have a big problem with housing. Yeah. And you have one party off on the side saying, yeah, housing's probably okay. We, we're we going to keep an eye on it, but it's not it's not the worst thing. And so you have uh, vote splitting among all these other parties. So given the way in which the electoral system works here, it's so like uh, not first past the post, but like 10 past the post, right? So, yeah. so then in that kind of uh, winner takes all, system if you can attract a core of voters the core of voters who are less worried about housing yeah. and a bunch of other things that are not strong progressive issues then then you can win
1: so then is the winner take all question are one in three voters in metro vancouver not concerned about housing as much as 65 or 70 percent of the metro vancouver or city vancouver voters uh, are deathly angry and screaming and yelling and raising their pitchforks if 32% of Vancouverites go, eh, housing's not a big deal.
2: It might well, not even be 32%.
1: And the people yeah. who show up. But that might be, that's that's yeah you, that it might be lower than that to be the threshold. But that's enough for the NPA to win mayor and council and everything else. Yeah. Well,
0: the thing is, the people who show up tend to be comfortable. Yep. Yeah. But the other assumption in here is that Wei Young's Coalition Vancouver doesn't, doesn't get off the ground. Doesn't pull their votes. Which and, I think is a reasonable, pretty safe for just... Well, it's I mean, true, but to she give might have a little corner there. For to herself. give
1: to right. give some modicum of credit to this idea out of Charlie Smith, you know, Wei Young's campaign is pretty savvy in the in the the, 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 the Chinese community. They they were they're going to run uh, a number of Cantonese and Mandarin flyers, and they're going to work that community pretty well. And you know that some uh, a sizable portion of that community, you know, supports a lot of her messaging. So she might pull what would otherwise be NPA votes.
0: Well, I'll just give. Credit to Charlie Smith's other article that a bunch of people pointed us at, which, which was the, actually good. Well, yeah, it's the grading. <laughs> How many candidates did each party run? And there, I think we'd probably all just agree with what he oh, said. Absolutely. Like one city nailed it. they only their best chances yeah. two. Cope might be shooting a little high. Vision might be shooting a little Cope's high. What, Cope's running th- two.
1: Who's the third? Derek I thought Derek O'Keefe. O'Keefe was the second. And Roberts. Oh, and Roberts. I forgot about. It. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Uh,
0: and even the Greens may be shooting a little high, but.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, Cope running three, if Ann Roberts is a, a fairly shoe in and, and Derek O'Keefe is the third, which is fair, Ann Roberts has a fairly similar constituency to Gene Swanson. Yeah. And Derek O'Keefe brings in new voters. And so bring, running all three of them, I think, is has some value there. Like,
0: Charlie didn't fail them. I think he gave him, like, a B or yeah. something. Yeah. So.
1: There's, like, but, some value there to talk yeah. about. I think that's all fair.
0: But let's talk about, just briefly, before we move away from the NPA, who's not running for the NPA.
1: But still running.
0: But still running. So a couple names have been floated around of people who are very, I guess, stereotypical NPA or like people Mm -hmm. you would think they'd be wanting to go for. So not running for the NPA is Rob McDowell, who is a career diplomat, activist in the LGBTQ community. He was very over Twitter on Pride, looking very sharp.
1: He is a really fascinating candidate. Like... Uh, I'm looking at the bio that Charlie Smith has in the Georgia Strait. Uh, you know, he helped establish HIV clinics across Vietnam. Uh, he's a supporter of the arts and so on and so forth. This is the kind of candidate that I think really plays to Stuart, what you were saying there about these sort of like business oriented, but socially progressive, NPA candidate historically. This is the kind of guy, you know, similar to, like, uh, I would say, a Sean Bickerton, who ran for the NPA last election, big, big arts supporter. This is the kind of guy that you would normally expect the NPA to, like, sort of glom into their, their, their orbit. But he's chosen to run as an independent.
0: Which is interesting. I mean, it's been... Called the year of the independent partially by Shauna
1: Sylvester and Sarah yeah. Plythe, but I mean, it helps them <laughs> there. But also, uh, George Affleck had tweeted out like three days beforehand that he was really excited that Rob McDowell was going to run for the NPA.
0: Yeah, Affleck's been really pumping up Rob McDowell while also being a bit critical of some of the other NPA moves, like readmitting but, Aaron Schum as a member, well, which may or may which not have happened.
1: May or may not have happened. But but the thing is that he 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 specifically said that Rob McDowell would run for the NPA. Almost as though there was, like, negotiations and they got broken off at some point. But it's just a bizarre turn of events. And now he's running independent.
0: And Wade Grant, who had talked about running with the Hector Slate. Well, his father then... is on
1: the board. We we, we we previously incorrectly said that it was his brother. But Wade Grant's father, uh, it was corrected uh, by, thanks to somebody on Twitter, is actually on the board of Yes Vancouver. So we just assumed. And now it sounds like he might be running for independent as yeah, well. Yeah,
0: he left a vague tweet of... He's not running with any of the parties. Dot dot dot.
1: <laughs> yeah, which he's still exploring.
2: His announcements options. to come, yeah. but also he has a plan. It was forward leaning, having a yeah. good look
1: at. Uh, yeah, or he's or he's simply exploring his possibilities and trying to gauge his. You know, you want to gauge your fundraising yeah. minimums because you want to make sure you know how much money you can raise. Because if you can't raise, you know, as an independent, if you can't raise ten thousand dollars and you're hitting council candidate, you're dead in the water. Yeah. And I'm guessing it's a lot more than that.
0: Well, so you have. Those two, you have Adrian Crook, who we've talked about before. Sarah Blythe, who we probably should talk about a lot more at some point. Mm-hmm.
1: She's a fascinating candidate, and she's eminently qualified to be a councillor. Whether or not she can get the voters to vote for her as an independent well, and she's is a question. She's past
0: Vision uh, Park Board commissioner, yes. so some elected experience as well. So, plus, other independents.
1: Still to come,
0: and some who've announced Tack and Graham Cook,
1: Tack and Graham and Cook, and a host yeah. of mayoral yeah. independent candidates, yeah. as we know, right? There's the two, the two like leading mayoral candidates that are running independent as Kennedy Stewart, not leading in the sense of the one and two, but they're in the top, ta- they're in the conversation. Yeah. Is, is is Kennedy and Shauna Sylvester?
0: So we could theoretically, but very unlikely, have an independent mayor and an independent majority council, yeah.
1: which would scare the living daylights out of everyone that does uh, advocacy at council. I know Francis Beulah said this on one of our podcasts and I've put a lot of thought into it since Francis said it was that, that the developers are scared of having a split council where they, they don't know who's in power. Uh, and I think about this cause I do lobbying in my, my day job. Uh, and if there's three or four different parties represented in council and one or two independents, that is a scary proposition for anyone that's trying to get the city to do something because you, you can't just have one meeting with four councillors because they're all in the same party. You, and then you have one meeting with three counselors because they're on the same party. And then you have one meeting with, you know, the other two. Now you have to have five, six, seven meetings. Now you have to tailor your message to, you know, seven different people. That is hard to do.
2: And each of them have to do their own work. Yeah. So each, you each have a caucus of one, mm-hmm. caucus of one. So yeah. and I mean, then
1: and that, the, like you say, like that the the four caucus, one of them could be like, I'll look into the issue and I'll report back.
2: Yeah, yeah. And burden sharing. So I mean, councillors are re- responsible for everything. It's different than uh, a cabinet, but there is that sort of possibility when you have a, a party. I've I know some people really dislike parties in politics and think we would be better off if we could just do away with parties, but it's really hard to govern. And it's more complicated for voters without parties. They do a lot of work translating between the voters and the actual institutions, mechanisms of government. Mm -hmm. And that's true for everyone. It's true for developers at City Hall, but it's also true for advocacy groups. It's true across the board.
1: Mm -hmm. In good news, as we reported earlier, uh, the Regent and Belmoral hotels uh, are being expropriated by the city.
0: I don't think we've actually covered that yet.
1: I thought we'd gone into it. I
0: think I, th- I thought it happened like right after our last recording.
1: Oh, fair enough. Well, uh, the Regent and Belmora Hotels, the city has announced that they're going through the process of expropriating. They had prior said that they would offer to go through a third party uh, assessment of how much the two buildings were, were valued at and pay the Sohota's full value, and the Sahoda said no. And the city, which had said in their initial statement, or will expropriate, has decided that the ore is very valuable to them. So they're in the process of expropriating them, and they've taken possession of them. And what's happened, and there's a Global Mail article that we're going to link to in the show notes, and what's happened is somebody has gone through and talked to a number of people at the Regent, which the Balmoral had already been uh, essentially shut down, and there was an emergency evacuation, essentially, of the Balmoral when it was deemed not, you know, fit for habitation. Because some of these places are just awful. Having gone into the Astoria uh, during the election when I was door knocking, uh, I can really attest to the the way in which I I, I question how people were asked to live there. Meanwhile, the the Belmont in the region, not... We were actually worse than the Astoria in, in the view of the, the city. And so, what's happened in, in, in this Globe Mail article is somebody's gone through and interviewed a whole host of people that were evacuated from the regent and moved into other housing. The cool thing with this is that when the Balmoral was closed down, uh, there wasn't the money flowing right at the time from the provincial government to be able to sort of develop and ensure that there was social housing. With the regent, everyone was moved off to other social housing units, uh, most of them run by Atira, the, the nonprofit. Uh, and it's it's a really neat piece. did you guys get a chance to take a look at it?
2: yeah, I had a look through it and the the role of Atira seems like it's really pivotal here. It's mm-hmm. impressive they were able to to do what they were uh they were doing, moving people out quietly over time, finding better places for people to live in Vancouver's housing situation that that is no mean feat, so I think yeah. they deserve credit here,
0: yeah. the Saotas are like just the perfect villain of Vancouver's housing <laughs> yep. crisis right? absolutely like So much of the housing crisis is systemic issues of not enough housing, these Mm -hmm. rules are wrong, or we haven't built enough of this or that, and all those complicated debates. Then there are the simple things, like there are evil people who run shitty places (laughs) that only the poorest among us can live in, and they're doing nothing to sort of help those people. And And so taking their houses, no one feels bad about this.
1: When, When you or I hear SRO, we often assume it's run by Atira or portland hotel society or a nonprofit that's taken possession of probably an older building that's not you know built with the the, the the expectations of a modern building for somebody that would live in it that's you know uh you know full-time employed affluent person and in reality that's what exists for a large for, for a component of the housing of social housing and then there's this non-social housing that's run by broadly speaking the same family well. And they own a whole host of them, including the Cobalt, including the Astoria, and a whole host of other ones. And they charge. And the thing that really struck me about this article was one, one couple that was, was relocated out of uh, the Regent talked about how they were now paying less per month uh, to go into the social housing unit for more square footage. And the thing that blew my mind is they were so happy that they had these two amenities that they hadn't had before, Wi-Fi and showers. I don't consider a shower to be an amenity.
2: No, Wi-Fi is a human right, and is it Denmark?
1: Is it a no? whole host of places. Yeah. I, I was looking it up. There's a bunch of it's places
2: increasingly recognized as something yeah. you need to get through yeah. life. One of the necessities.
0: Don't tell that to the electro hypersensitive among us, but that's a separate <laughs> rant. Um,
2: we can do, we can distinguish between Wi-Fi and. <laughs> yeah. and, and but and, but
1: if you're if you're if you're trying and hoping to get people a leg up in life, you know, there's a couple of things they need to have that are hard to get. Uh, One of them is an address so that, you know, mail and whatnot can get to them. That's provided by an SRO. One of them is a phone number so an employer can call them. That's, you know, that can be provided by the SRO. Well, an SRO is a single residence. Sorry, sorry, not an SRO. Sorry, I mean a social housing unit. An SRO, I assume, doesn't provide a phone because they appear to not provide anything. But
0: but just for people who haven't delved into this, an SRO is a single residency occupancy. Kind of like the minimal amount of housing yeah, like are like between a one,
1: yeah, often these are between 100 and 200 square feet. Uh, sometimes they have shared uh, shared washrooms on the floor, although not always.
0: You're talking like on the level of college dorms, but what often much less kept up.
1: Yeah, well, just, college dorms have a significant janitorial staff and a significant yeah. maintenance staff. And yeah, anyway, so uh, the thing that blew my mind was this Wi-Fi thing is like, Showers, like, showers is just basically human right. Um, but like, like you said, is that, you know, if we want people to get a leg up in life, how do they not have internet?
0: Mm. Well, I'll even give credit to some of the things Hector Bremner talked about in the by-election campaign when I talked to him back then, is he did talk about the importance of programs like Housing First mm-hmm. as a way to tackle ho- homelessness. Yeah. And he pointed to New West that's done actually a bunch of work on this issue. The idea that if you can give someone a house, then no matter, especially, you know, pulling down the barriers like you don't have to say are you living clean yeah like getting them into a house is often the first step to do you
1: do you not have a pet yeah yeah keeping the barrier the 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 low barrier is what it's called is that sort of ensuring that low barrier of access and yeah this is huge and this is very valuable
0: and so i'm sure in the expropriation process the sahotas are going to fight back like oh
2: it's going to court yeah they've indicated already they're not, not going to roll over is the quote
0: so ongoing story i think the Biggest issue for a lot of people is, like, why did this take so long? Why is it only 2018 when Vision's facing electoral wipeout for it to have happened when it could have happened years earlier?
1: Uh, I get a little frustrated by that. I think Vision could have done a lot better in their time. But I also will note that Vision is the first city council to ever spend city dollars to build social housing. Uh, every other council before that, and this is a, a real ideological divide that there isn't necessarily a right answer, but every other council before that said, if we start to put our own money where our mouth is, this the province will never fund social housing and they'll expect us to always pay for it. And the province said, all right, or then the city said, under vision screw you guys, you're not willing to spend any money. We're willing to spend money if you partner with us. We'll pay half, havesies, or what have you not. And they came up with these agreements. And so this is, you know, Vision was the first city council to ever actually directly spend money on social housing. And so I think it's tough to say that they could have done more because, you know, you operate within the environment that you're in. But it's also tough to say that they did a great job because the situation still sucks. It
2: was not a great place. Yeah. It's, it's tough to say exactly how causal this is, but another factor in the background was uh, a class action lawsuit being brought by tenants of the Regent and the Balmoral. So it's possible that was part of what spurred the action as well.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's so mind boggling how bad the situation got with those SROs. And the fact that they charge well above the welfare expected rate for housing and so on and so forth is just so bad. And I, you know, to share my story is you know walking through the Astoria, and I've heard this from countless people that have gone to countless of these 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 SROs. Is as you get farther away from a window, the smell gets stronger, and it's not a good smell. As you get higher up in the building, you know the carpets get uglier and ranker and whatnot. And when the doors open for the apartments, which usually have, you know, two windows that are each facing the same direction, which means there's no cross breeze. um, If they have two windows, they are not well-maintained. And even if, you know, there's been articles about people living in them and what they've done to try to survive, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, cover the walls in plastic so that the, you know, the black mold doesn't get through to you. So on and so forth. That's, it's, it's really atrocious, the way in which these people have been asked to live.
2: And yet it's a step up from, Living on the street, which is yeah. what people are worried about now. What happens mm-hmm. if we, these? What happens to these units now? So we have the expropriation yeah. going on. If it's a lengthy court battle, then these these buildings sit empty. Where social housing organizations like uh, Deere want to get people back in them, yeah. and it might as soon as possible because we are be, still in a, this housing crisis.
1: Yeah, and it might be years and years before they can get you know the region of the Balmoral up to a point where people can habitate in them again because they're that bad.
0: Well, as we're talking about. The darker side of Vancouver housing. Let's move to the darker side of the Salish Sea.
1: Oh, the most heartbreaking news story that has been in the news for the last, like, two weeks.
0: I didn't even follow it that closely because I saw the headlines and I was like, this is just going to be a sad story that I I can probably churn to all the other.
1: Right. There's a lot of sad stories out there there. I couldn't read some of the articles because, you know, I think the... So the, the story is J thirty uh, five is one of the one of the the southern resident orcas part of J pod. She lost a calf. She's twenty years old. She lost her calf, and apparently this is really common for orcas when they lose a calf young. Is that they they carry them around for a couple of days afterwards as like a set of mourning because the orcas are an extremely complex society which can be considered analogous to a sentiency. and so she did it for a couple of days and then a couple of days more and a couple of days more. And she's been doing it for like two weeks now, and it's 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 the most heartbreaking thing in the world. The other members of JPod have been helping; they've been pushing the calf along with her. Sometimes, if she drops it, because she also isn't eating because she's busy, and if she drops the calf, the other members will pick the, pick the calf up, and help. And this is like the most heartbreaking thing ever. And the thing that got me was when I saw on Twitter somebody posted: "Is this is this mourning or is this a protest?"
0: <laughs> and it's one of those situations where I don't think we can link any specific incident to no broader social issues yeah. or you it's, know, climate it's, issues it's or
1: the, the the salmon runs have been declining it's that the water right. is warming it's that the 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 environment is getting worse and so on and so forth
0: yeah. just like you know one hurricane and, isn't and it's, de- evidence yeah. of climate change yep. but well, the fact that a lot more and this is sort and, of an indicative it's the polar bear on the ice even if mm-hmm. that image isn't doesn't have the greatest yeah uh, well historic- and it's, it's
1: also it's also DDT Um, which is not, I I assume, not for J35 because she's only 20. But for most of the Salish Sea Orcas, they've got a high level of DDT because of the, the salmon picking it up from the things the salmon were eating that came off of the The water that washed out down the rivers because DDT was a, a a spray that you would spray on uh, a pe- uh, herbicide, P- a pesticide that you would spray on on agriculture in the eighties. That was works was really well. I mean, it kills everything. It kills everything. Yeah, and so it's it's all of these things that we've done to get to this point. There's now uh, I think it was seventy six uh, members of of the three pods, J K and L pod, and they've been in decline for the last twenty years. And 20 years ago, there was a plan, back when there were uh, 80-something of them, they said that it's in critical danger that we may not be able to keep them uh, if we don't do immediate action on the environment. We haven't done that action.
0: So this calf may or may not have died in direct correlation to any of those things, but it is sort of emblematic. And Mm -hmm. I think that raises these questions. Like one of the other things that came up in the last week or two during the heat waves we've had which yep. we had like such almost a breakup we had like two days where it wasn't yeah. high it 20. dropped like six degrees and it, was it was gorgeous so close to having that drop in temperature line up with pride and then and it then it spiked right it back like, up again nope, you're gonna go dance downtown <laughs> in nearly 30 degrees like oh. you do every year yep. but during that heat wave two of the beaches here in Vancouver I think well, Sunshine no, Beach, more, uh, of
1: the beaches. Oh, more of the beaches. Because all of False Creek is, you know, no swim. Right. Like, no sw- was already no swim at that point because of the E. coli levels. And that's, you know, that's to do with a host of things. Mm-hmm. And then as you pushed out and out and out, West Vancouver had some beaches shut down as well. And, you know, you like you were saying, the two beaches was, uh, was you know, English Bay and, Kitsilano, uh, and Kits, Kits, Kits yeah. Beach. Both got shut down as well because of E. coli levels, which is relatively rare because the water flows out there. It doesn't flow in False Creek because it's a one-ended inlet. But it you know, that's and a lot of that is human caused. You know, there there's some element that's not human caused, although I would argue that the proliferation of seagulls is probably human caused. Stop feeding them people. But you know we, it's, we could
0: bring in rules like in an Alberta where there are designated pest species that you can shoot on site.
1: <laughs> we no—that's that.
0: only outside the cities. So. No,
1: we have that outside of the city in oh, BC okay. as well. If you ever see a wild boar outside of BC, you, uh, outside of the cities in BC, you can oh. shoot it. Wild boar are horribly invasive species that does huge de- uh, huge uh, environmental de- uh, devastation.
0: I know it's coyotes, gophers, and magpies in Alberta.
1: Aren't those all natural species? Yeah, but there's too many of them. Oh no, we only do it with like invasives. <laughs>
2: No, it's pest control. We also yeah. do it with rats. We yeah. I'm from Alberta originally. Well,
1: Alberta doesn't have rats. Is that's that right. right because that's cold.
2: because well, that's because we uh, patrol for them. Yeah. Right. I say we like I live there. I haven't been so, there for quite a
1: while now. So, so to go back to like our water quality, right? Like, is the Salish Sea is you know it's our our lifeblood. It's 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 you know if I get really really you know Matthew if, if I'm if I'm gonna channel Matthew who unfortunately can't be here today you know our economy depends on it and less importantly. It's such a facet of every part of our being. <laughs> and so, like, this is our culture, is the Salish Sea, right? Like, we all we all talk about seeing whales on the ferries and so on and so forth. And if we lose the whales, it's, A, losing an apex predator, which is absolutely devastating for uh, an entire ecosystem. But also, I think it's a loss to our our, our culture. I think it's a, our heart and soul is is those killer whales.
0: Well, I did an episode of Politico a couple of weeks ago with Adam Olson, the Green mm-hmm. MLA, on salmon. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, he comes... In part from indigenous communities yeah. on Vancouver Island, and so he tied it both to those traditions and to the economy and to you know the broader environment yeah. and the salmon and orcas are intricately connected.
1: And, he, and it was a really neat interview. Yeah, and he is, he put it really well. So the city has done a number of initiatives over the last couple of years. Uh, one was the boaters pump out program last year, which has been renewed for this year. Which boaters in False Creek have historically not liked the idea they have to pay to pump out sewage at a very nominal and small rate and so they've just dumped it into false creek when they're living in their boats we as a city decided that we can't police it to a point where we can force them to do it we're just going to offer free pump out program and it costs a nominal amount to the city in order to ensure uh, a a clean environment raise
0: docks fees by a cent
1: yeah right (laughs) kind of thing yeah uh, so the Boaters Pump out Program is great. It's a great initiative that came out yesterday, last year. Sewage line replacement. They replace about six kilometers of sewage line every year. Right now, when there's a bit of a storm, uh, the sewage lines and the and the storm drains are the same pipe. That's not Which good.
2: is not ideal.
1: Yeah. And so when there's a bit of a storm, it all washes out into False Creek and into, you know, Kitts Beach and into uh, Burrard Inlet and so on and so forth. So they're replacing that gradually. And they're going to have that all replaced by 2050. So they,
2: any particular reason why they picked 2050?
1: Uh, because they only wanted to spend so much money per year. And so, uh, when I am 65, approaching retirement age, you know, as a millennial, it'll be a good 10 years later, I will finally be able to live in a city that doesn't wash sewage into the ocean.
0: The other thing is there's a pragmatic approach to this construction. Like, replacing sewer lines is a very heavy yep. project. Mm-hmm. And cities get very pissed when you shut down all the major roads. Like, First Ave is closed right now. I'm a I don't know if it's in relation to this, but yeah, I think it is, I think
1: it is actually a water of. I think it is a water water issue. Yeah. But like
0: it takes out cuz the sewer lines tend to follow yeah. major artillery. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't want to change them all at once. But I mean maybe could, 2050 is a if, bit long. If you
1: go from but, 6 to to 10 kilometers yeah. a year. You're going to go from 2050 to a lot sooner.
0: Yeah, I just mean it's not only yeah. money,
1: and so that's that's one thing that you could write your c- city councillor or your council candidates about. Uh, additionally, Metrovan, uh, there was a Metrovan motion put forward by Vision Vancouver at Metrovan to uh, speed up the rate at which they, they they did their renovations on the Iona wastewater facility. Uh, which would significantly reduce the amount of waste going into the the Salish Sea from there. Uh, It was voted down because at the end of the day, speeding up the rate at which we get better on these things is not viewed by a lot of people as a politically expedient thing, you know, spending money on that. And so that's one of those things that, you know, if you write your city councilor, you're going to see a speed up of that. You're going to see them take it more seriously. And then the last thing is, you know, we have, you know, everyone really celebrates Still uh, Still Creek because Still Creek now has salmon returning to it every year. Really fascinating if you ever go see it. And as a kid, that grew up in Surrey, you know, there's a there's a handful of streams that have sa- salmon spawning in Surrey. If you go to Bear Creek Park, you'll see in November you'll see all the salmon running through Bear Creek Park. But we only have the one in Vancouver. We had Musqueam Creek uh, out in uh, Vancouver, but uh, some city works employees uh, drained a swimming pool into it uh, about three years ago. turns out there's some chlorine in that. Oh, no. Uh, And so, you know, daylighting, you know, talking to your city councilors, talking to your government and saying, you know, I want you to daylight more streams. A, makes for a much better city. Uh, But also, you know, you're going to add to the the salmon spawning. And that's the little things that a city can do to help what's going on right now.
0: Well, and this really goes back to what I think Gordon Price talked about at our last live show. Like, some of the most important things a city does are the things you don't actually think about, Mm -hmm. like water. And I guess the other half of that is sewage. and you know, dealing with those responsibly Absolutely. is so important, especially for a city that's trying to be green a city, whether you buy into Vision's branding of it or you just think <laughs> being environmental is the right thing to do. Yeah. And sometimes those align.
1: Yeah. and the last thing I'd hi- I really highlight about this that really I found really resonating, or I found really interesting, is the New York Times put out a piece today highlighting just how hard this is because uh, the Puget Sound and the in the Salish Sea, or you know, where the Puget Sound is a part of the Salish Sea. Yeah, whales Washington, don't notice
0: international borders.
1: Yeah, weirdly, whales run up and down. And in fact, there is a, a, a and in fact, a JPod, a member of JPod, J50 down in the Puget Sound has been disconnected from JPod for some time, and we're all and and officials in Washington State and NBC are coming up with because the. It's emaciated, and she's 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 or like or the, the the whale is hurt is not 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 being well fed. They're trying to come up with a way to just directly throw salmon at the whale, and so like J Pod is hurting, and L- and K and L Pot are hurting, and there's some immediate need here. And the thing for me is the last time the New York Times wrote a piece that said BC was doing a really bad job of something was when the uh, the campaign finance laws piece came out in the in, in in New York Times, which called us the Wild West of of, of of electoral financing. And so I wonder is, is this going to be one of those other moments where BC looks and says, geez, if the New York times says we're doing a bad job, we need to do something.
0: I hope it's first action that, but it's also weird. The, or it's also a bit frustrating that the New York times never has anything nice to
1: say about our province, but <laughs> most news is bad. news.
2: Well, these read days. the travel section. I'm sure they have nice write-ups of the city.
1: I'm sure BC Ferries is paid for several write-ups about BC,
2: but this moment, it I mean, it is, it's a window of opportunity, which are hard impossible to predict in advance but they present opportunities for mm-hmm. new kinds of politics to emerge and i mean this this reminds me of uh, above all the uh, the immigration crisis it was photographs di- dire photographs mm-hmm. of people in dire uh, circumstances yeah. and even poor Alan Curdy on the beach really galvanized people and and the fact that we see this with the, this mother that everyone empathizes with it's it's not uh, a story about a, an animal it's a story about a mother and people Mm -hmm. understand that and it really drives it home in a way that you would not have expected even though if you talk to people who study the orca populations they would talk to you about the culture of the the populations it's just not something that people think about every day but now people are thinking about it it's not it's international news it's in the new york times it's being covered widely in the u.s and so there's awareness there and that provides an opportunity to to do things differently but then, of course, it's, it's that question of what happens next? Do people continue to care? What kind of action do they take mm-hmm. to to keep the issue in, in the forefront of people's minds?
0: Well, let's take a little road trip out of Vancouver to before we close off the episode. There's a few other things that have been going on in some of the other election races happening around the Lower Mainland. First, let's go across the Lionsgate Bridge and make a left to <laughs> West Vancouver, where...
1: And you mean, you mean a very physical left, not yeah. a, not an ideological left. No.
0: Like, you turn on to Taylor <laughs> Way or <you> know, Green <laughs> Drive or whatever. They're having an election. Yeah. Like, but we're all having an election, but they are actually but, having a contestant. But
1: multiple people are going to run for mayor.
0: So, in both 2011 and 2015, they had one guy who stepped up and said, I'll run for mayor and everyone mayor, what else.
1: Mayor Smith. The very, very uniquely named Mayor Smith.
0: And you know what? I guess everyone in West Van was comfortable as they would be living in West Van, and went. Yep. Yeah. All right. And no one ran against, and so people didn't even need to vote, and he became mayor <laughs> twice in a yep. row.
1: So we've now got we've now got a, 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 a fight on our hands is uh, Marianne Booth versus Christine Cassidy, and one of the two candidates has been viewed as being a bit of a, 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 a continuation of Mayor Smith's reign. Well, the other one is is really running on a there's too much density in West Van platform. She believes that, you know, there's too many high rises in West Vancouver where there are no high rises. And she really doesn't want to allow significant density to be built out. So this is going to be the real race in West Vancouver over continuing to not allow density or to continue to allow even less density than they are now. It's very West Van. Oh, God, it's very West Van. And in keeping with it being very West fan, the North Shore News allowed a very old white man to put out a column that was unbelievable in how atrocious it was when it came to handling uh, the issue of the two women that were running. Just
0: to read the lead on this, Christine Cassidy, outwardly a Dresden China doll. I don't
1: even know what that means.
0: I had to Google it. It's the like little dolls that are made of porcelain.
1: Yeah, I was I was at a family a family reunion yesterday and I asked one of my, my, my older great aunts and or no, I asked one of my one of the older members of the family and they 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 outlined that to me and I just had no idea.
0: So outwardly a Dresden China doll, but with the guts of a burglar is running for mayor <laughs> of West Vancouver.
1: He also referred to her as having delicate porcelain skin. You know,
0: just leaning into that China doll.
1: Oh, yeah. And and referred to another candidate's questioning as stiletto sharp knives. Another female candidate. Yeah, and both of the, the two women candidates. This absolutely abysmal piece uh, has also, been allowed to run.
0: Cassidy is of the Irish stock, forever ingrained with the great famine and mass exodus of 1845.
1: What even is that? Like, I'm Irish. I don't even know what that means.
0: I'm Irish, and I had thought my family came over because of a famine, but we may have actually been slightly better off than that before. <laughs> <Apparently>. but- <laughs>
1: I think what bothers me most about this is the journalism sphere seems to be filled with people who have tenure in it and have been there long enough that they can say whatever they want. They tend to come from a older white male perspective that is, I think, not fit for 1964, let alone 2018.
0: I know we've had a number of journalists on this podcast Mm -hmm. and we've spoken to them and I will say this is not a journalism piece this is an op-ed column
1: yeah he's rather. a he's semi-retired uh from having a long-term op-ed column in the vancouver sun and prior to that he was a journalist and okay. he was a practicing journalist what mm. i'm
0: just trying to say is like the people doing the active covering of mm-hmm. vancouver right now mm. the gen saint dennis right yeah
1: justin mcelroy oh absolutely some, some of the best to, people in the industry yeah.
2: and people at the North Star News here. I actually, oh yeah, Brent I have Richter. Brent Richter. Brent Richter's
1: is absolutely absolutely livid about this, as he said in his tweets that this should not have gone out.
2: Yeah, so I have. I don't know if it's a conflict. My brother works at the North Shore News as well. So, oh, yeah, the other press is your brother Trevor tweets. Lawtons. No, the, he's the, not the author of this. Piece? No, he is not. And uh, there'd be a,
1: quite quite the generational gap if the, if he was. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, quite the family history. No, so my brother is actually younger than me. He looks older than me. But <laughs> don't important. tell him I said
1: that. That's important. Yeah.
2: But there's a real gap between uh, where people are in the newsroom versus where some of yeah. these older, like you say, almost tenured mm-hmm. columnists. And uh, it is difficult because uh, I've written opinion pieces. And if you write an opinion piece and you submit it, you're going to fight for your your opinion. That said, editorial staff can maybe do a little bit more to tr- try to clean it up and save well, you from yourself.
1: Well, but. he has an every other week column is the thing. So he's not even an editorialist. He's a columnist. Well, that's right. Like he's given he's given this space all the time. And this article is so bad. And this article has been called out. There have been numerous uh, letters to the editor already about it that the, the North Shore News has, to their credit, published. And I highly recommend everybody jump on board with writing more of them because it's mind-boggling to me that they haven't taken this thing down yet.
0: Well... Heading from West Van down Highway 1, we get to Langley City, where a familiar name has entered the race for mayor, Peter Fassbender, past mayor of the city of Langley, and former MLA has now announced that he wants to be mayor once again.
1: So Peter Fassbender was mayor at a time when the mayor's council really thought they could come together and put together a package that would result in a major transportation uh, improvement in the in the Metro Vancouver region. Uh He really was a leading advocate for substantial public transportation infrastructure expansion in the manner that it was that took the shape of the 10 year plan that was really cemented in stone around the around 2010, 2011. Uh, and then he ran for election in Surrey as an MLA in 2013 and won and became a cabinet minister in a government that required a transit referendum and fought tooth and nail against funding public transit.
0: And he. Earned the nickname at one point or another of Peter Fackbender. I remember. Just like, <laughs> I don't know if he that was just didn't like him.
1: Yeah, he, well, he 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 also thing. he went to war with the BCTF, which is yeah. not in, out of keeping. He he got his start in politics uh, advocating to keep corporal punishment in the 1980s. Oh. Um, oh yeah, that's, you're all giving me the look that everyone that's listening is saying. Uh, his actual start was advocated to keep corporal punishment in schools. I think it was no, I think it was in '73 uh, when uh, the BCNDP were were removing corporal punishment from schools, uh, and he la- and he helped launch a campaign out of Langley to keep it successful. You know, some no, no, thankfully, but you know sometimes people can be really, 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 really wrong and still get elected. Anyway, so the thing that the thing that gets me the most is that he was such a staunch advocate for TransLink in the organization, as well as for greater public transit as a concept while he was mayor, and then did a bit of an about-face. And so my, my wondering is uh, how much of that about-face was orders from the top under Christy Clark's government, and whether or not he'll go back to being the Langley mayor staunchly in favor of public transit, because I think he's the front-runner now.
0: Well, and as far as I've read, he was very popular in the city of Langley when he was mayor there. So he was very well. liked. It'll be the question for the people of Langley, you know, why maybe they were happy with how he performed as MLA. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's up to them to make this decision, but it's interesting to see what he's doing. And I had forgotten briefly that he had lost last year oh yeah so uh, many
1: a sh- people including myself had forgotten that he had lost his and i was kind of like oh because, it's like leonard
0: Krogh." well he was, was one of the like it, really
1: it was like, it was no. in in the last bc election you know like the bc liberals were getting knocked out like bc liberal cabinet ministers were getting knocked out left right and center in metro vancouver uh and he was one of them
0: he's not stepping down from anything i mean emma elected to run for mayor unlike leonard Krogh yeah. and Nanaimo and
1: so he's not going to affect but, anything that 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 yeah. Politicoast or Podkeeper yeah. Land are going to yeah. have to cover. And it might be.
2: He's just a, a good politician, yeah. so he understands the incentives of any situation and if mm-hmm. the incentives as mayor are to push for transit. But, uh, I mean, it probably makes sense to watch carefully what he says to see how he's positioning himself.
1: He has indicated that he's willing to talk about ways that the government that he was a part of did not do well on housing and transit. Uh, he didn't go into details from the interview that I saw. Uh, And he has said that he wants to focus his campaign on transit and housing, which, you know, I mean, way to read the room (laughs) in a literal, like, yes, you are literally reading the room. People just asked you
0: about transit and housing, Mr. Fassbender. Are you going (laughs) to answer that question? Yes, I am prepared to talk about transit and housing.
1: Yeah. And so uh, maybe he is going to become an advocate out of Langley for, you know, for Langley purposes. Uh, We'll we'll see. He, He demurs from technology debates because he's smart. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and so we'll see what ends up happening there.
0: Well, let's close off with our usual bit of Vancouverada a week or so ago, I guess, Patrick, you were wandering around Stanley park about quarter to nine o'clock <laughs> as it were with your partner and went, you know what, there's this thing that happens every day in Vancouver at nine
1: that I'd never seen before. And so we were, we, were, we decided to go on a bike ride around Stanley park to see the, the sunset and we were co- starting to go around and I said, Hey, it's like ten to nine, and we're just starting around the, like starting around the marinas. You know, there's that nine o'clock gun that has been going for like a hundred years here that I've literally never seen. As a Vancouver resident my entire life, somehow I'd never seen it. And so we 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 rode over to it. We stopped. We dropped off our bikes. We we watched. And then about ten minutes to the to the hour, uh, the lights go on. There's these two lights on the plaque that turned on. Weird. And they, they're, they're old school lights. They're like, they're not LEDs. Uh, and then at like 10 seconds to go, the lights started flickering. Uh, like, go, 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 go. And there, I think if I remember right, this was about two or three weeks ago, there was a, there was a bit of a like a, a bump, 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 as it sort of counted down without numbers. Uh, and so I pulled up my phone to take pictures. And then the cannon blew off as the 9 o'clock gun went off, this 12-pound, like, muzzle-loading cannon. So,
2: like, on a scale of like 1 to... Really loud, it must like you can hear it from over here, so it must have been
1: yeah, I, I mean, I've wow. been around a lot of firearms and explosions and uh things like that in my 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 life, uh including you know twenty five millimeter howitzers and things like that. It was loud, <laughs> <laughs> now normally when I'm around those things, I have earplugs in yeah, um but it was it was really quite loud, uh and it was shocking, I was pretty amused, nice. and so
0: these guns date back to a sort of British rule of the colony out here as a way to provide municipal defense from yeah. the terrifying Americans
1: in the 1800s. A whole host of guns were brought here. I think there was like six or seven of them were brought here in order to like like assist in our defense against the Americans. And I think if I if I understand the locations of them, uh, one of them is the this nine o'clock gun located just short of Brockton Oval on Stanley Park. One of them is out front of the BC British Columbia Regiment Armory on BD Street, uh, right by uh, Rogers Arena. Uh, another one is out front of the New Westminster Regiment uh, Reserve Regiment building, which interestingly enough was originally a fire hall constructed in 1864, if I recall correctly, uh, and is currently used as a military armory. Uh, and then I think there's one more that's on like the pier in New West. And they were like like four guns given to us to defend against the Americans.
2: What was the like? Now I'm curious about the defensive strategy. So if you spread out, you have six guns and you spread them over.
1: Oh, I think they were spread out later on. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, because usually um, you want them close together. But also, that would work but also better. bear in mind, North Road in Quitlam or the Quitlam Burnaby border uh, was literally the bug out of New Westminster Road. The whole premise was: if the Americans came, hold off as long as you can, and if you can't, run up North Road <laughs> until you get to Burdenville and get on a boat. Hmm. And so we didn't really have, uh, let's let's say if the Americans really wanted Vancouver back in the day, they kind of had it.
0: Right. (laughs) Like just geographically with mountains on all sides except the south.
1: Yeah, they they could could kind of come straight straight up through. Yeah, like
0: land approach to it.
1: Yeah, this this 9 o'clock gun's been going for years. Uh, At one point, the engineers at UBC uh, found a way to get inside of it and painted it red, uh, which actually damaged it significantly and cost significant amounts of money to to, to refurbish. But the engineers, being what they are, you know, did that. (laughs) Uh, And it's been going off every day at 9 p.m. for, like, a bunch of years. Apparently, it originally would, like, uh, signal the close of fishery time or something like that. And, yeah. It's if you can go see it, don't go like really out of your way. Don't plan a Stanley Park <laughs> trip solely around seeing it. You know, go to Stanley Park in the day and see
0: don't oversell Be-
1: it. Yeah, see yeah. Beaver Lake, go and walk around a bit, and then show up at nine because this thing is actually pretty pretty neat to see.
0: Well, I think that'll about wrap it up for another episode of the Canby Report. Stuart, remind people where they can find you on Twitter if they want to hear more of your hot takes.
2: I am at Stuart Prest, S-T-E-W-A-R-T-P-R-E-S-T, and I'm pretty frequent tweeter about Vancouver, about Canada, about the world, so yeah, hit me up.
0: And you can follow us at Report. Follow, find us on Facebook, but I find Facebook pages are almost useless, so I might stop plugging oh.
1: them. I was shocked today when I saw that we have, you know, 700 people following us on Twitter and, you know, a bunch of people on our Patreon and stuff like that, and like 100 people on our Facebook.
0: Yeah, even Politico's Facebook's only like 200, so.
1: So I went on a a stream, and if you're listening to this and you're a friend of mine, you probably got an invite to like the Facebook page. Uh, Do please like the Facebook page. That's why
0: you've been getting so many. (laughs) Maybe a more productive use of your time is leaving us a review, although I don't know if iTunes reviews even help anymore. No, they're great. iTunes
1: reviews are fantastic. Go put a five-star there. Yeah, iTunes reviews are the lifeblood of a podcast.
0: But maybe the most important thing you can do is go to patreon.com slash Report, (laughs) chip in a couple bucks, and get on our Slack channel, and find out when our next live show is. Otherwise, for the Canby Report, I'm Ian Bushfield. I'm Patrick Meehan. Thank you, Stuart Press.
2: Thanks very much for having me. Long-time listener.